You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Uh, hi, my name is John Krampner, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show! Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have John Krampner. He's the author of Ernest Lehman, The Sweet Smell of Success. John, how are you? I'm doing well, Tony. How are you? I'm, you know, I'm pretty good. I, well, thanks for asking, because I think I finished my novel. That one that okay. I've been telling you about for months and months and months. My congratulations. I assume you feel a combination of relief and deep sorrow. And anxiety. <laughs> well, it goes without saying. Is 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 that is that uh, also your um, experience when you have a book uh, finished and you're like, wait, I think this is done. Yeah, it's kind of the literary equivalent of postpartum depression. <gasps> that I like that a lot. <laughs> it does make sense though, because it's because like uh, I mean, uh, you know, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, you you're you're diving into characters and you're 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 intimate with these characters. I don't think people understand that mm-hmm. your intimacy. If you're working on something four to six hours a day, that's more intimate than almost any marriage or any job partnership it's 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 a do you find it the same thing where it's just like and then all of a sudden they're not in your life anymore even if you hate their guts well it's part that and it's just part a process thing as as uh, as an author as you know when you're working on a book life makes sense and when you're not you have to figure out some way for life to make sense now that you're not working on the book. How do you continue to have life make sense for you if you're not working on a book? Um, I engage in political activism and chase women. And and what's women? Um, I, uh, I go looking for a woman to complete my life. Oh, chase women, chase women. I thought you said swimming. I was, I, I, I thought you said chase swimming and I'm like, I need to learn more about that because because it's just like, that's why John has such a lovely like relaxation aura around him because he's chase swimming. And it's just like, no chase women. And I'm like, Oh yeah, no, that that's just a lot of exercise. <laughs> well, I, 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 I am glad that I have been able to fabricate a persona that convinces you that I'm a relaxed person that, that, that shows I'm, at some point, I'm doing my job. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people go, sometimes people think I'm relaxed. And I'm like, no, I'm just tired. I'm a mess. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh... but, but when you finish, like when you finish a book, do you, do you have like, do you have the next one in your head? And you're like, wait a second, that interests me. I need to, I need to start um, doodling with that. Is, is, there, is there a constant, like, you know, uh, I guess, workflow with you? Yes. Um, ordinarily, in in the last year of a book, um, I you know, I realized that the the old order is about to die and the new order must be born. So yeah, I start thinking, you know, what would make a good next one? You know, I, you know. Now at this point, you know, I'm I'm seventy one, and so I am starting on 
a new book, but I'm not sure if I'm going to do any beyond this one. Yeah, I, I may just put myself out to pasture or something. Out to pasture. <laughs> what What does that mean? I, they, I've heard the term, but I don't know the significance of it with regarding age. Well, well, we're. we're I, I think we're, we're both we're both urban people, so the whole idea of you know putting your livestock out to pasture, of course, is going to be strange to us. But it's I don't know. I guess it's it's like one step before sending your horse to the glue factory or something. <laughs> Dude, you're dark. You're killing me. <laughs> Oh man, I you know I don't I'm not 71 yet, but I'm I'll be behind you pretty soon. And right. I don't you know I don't think they're gonna be able to um, stop me from writing until I just until I'm gargling my last uh, breath. But well, well, that's I, maybe that maybe I'm just being delusional though. Maybe I do need to stop at some point. No, I I understand and respect that point of view. I once read somewhere it was this woman author and she said that if she were locked in a closet she would start writing on the inside of the closet now if i were locked in a closet i would scream get me the hell out of here so um perhaps that shows a lack of dedication to my craft but that's just how i am I, but they, I, at the same time, both things would happen because I think I would be banging on the door going, get me out of here, get me out of here, help, help, help. And then mm -hmm. after a couple hours, it's yeah. it, there, there's like, it's almost like, a, you know, as I'm formulating this scene in my head, there's right. almost like a resignation to wait a second. I'm like really stuck here. What do I do? Well, here's right. a pen and a bunch of white walls. Uh, chapter one up in the corner and, you know, and then, and then just kind of wait to hear if anything's outside and then stop and scream for like 15, 20 minutes. And then, okay. Chapter that's, two. Well, well, that's, that's admirable. The only fly in the ointment with that, as I see it, is that when you're locked in the closet, it's dark. You can't see anything. But Oh, interesting. I didn't even put, I didn't even put that together. Right. Right. What would you do? When, when, when you have a dark outlook, right, you, you tend to sort of war game all these particulars. Right. Then, then, yeah. I. So, if it's pitch black in that closet, even if there's a pen, there's nothing you can do. Well, it's. I guess if somehow it had, you know, like a little like, like a light on it somewhere, like an app, you know, a light app, then maybe. Right. But that would only apply to now where like say if this was 20 years that that would be like a new invention. So so in the so it's so it doesn't it still doesn't make sense and like if it's an app even on your phone your battery is going to die. So I so now I now I'm understanding the kicking and screaming and um I'm all with you. I think if I was in that closet with you <laughs> one, one, it would it would sound like we're both gay, and two, <laughs> um, that's uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, and right, two, and two, um, we would both be kicking and screaming, but I think we would do it in shifts because we would get tired. Right, either that or we'd both be black and blue. <laughs> You're kicking, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> or we could tell each other stories and whoever makes it out has to write the story. Chapter one. Remember this, John. Remember, please. Well, and, and also, you're like, hey, it's my turn to kick. You know? <laughs> Is, you know, I, isn't it interesting how as humans, we're always looking for fairness and things. It, it's this is something that has been boggling my mind. Even to the point where when we don't know a person or we don't know anybody, but say we're in line at a grocery store and someone just cuts in front, that's a major assault because we're under, we have these rules in our head where these rules, it just, it's like, oh, wait, that's not fair. Immediately we're like, that's not fair. And, and we're always trying to keep, we're always trying to keep an equality of fairness. Mm-hmm. No, no, we actually want more fairness for ourselves than others. At least I do. Right. Yeah. 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 And then the other, you know, it's, I've also noticed, and I didn't, I didn't realize this, but like even people who are like ultra wealthy, like, like beyond wealthy, um, where it's, where there's no care in the world about them never having money. But at the same time, I feel that they feel like they're overcharged for something. It's very important that they're not overcharged for something. And I, I used to think though that makes no sense because you're you're you don't have a want for anything, but it does make sense because everyone wants to be treated on a fair level. Well, well, the, well and the other uh, side to that, of course, is that that's how they got to be ultra wealthy by making sure on every single occasion that they get every cent that's coming to them. Interesting. Yes. Yes. If it's generational wealth, though, I was, I'm thinking like yeah. trust fund people who never even had to, uh, like the people who have to work for it, it's a very different thing. But people who don't know <laughs> anything where it's just they, they can't even fathom the issue of worrying about paying for rent, which I didn't realize, like people don't worry about that. Sometimes I'm like, what? <laughs> How can you know? What, what do you mean? It's taken care of for life? And um which is fine. I, you know, I have no problem with that. It, it was just, it's just new concepts. I've, you know, I'm in my fifties and I'm still getting new concepts. The, uh, well, well, that's good. It, it shows you're still learning and growing. I don't know about growing, but sure. <laughs> Maybe devolving. Does it, does it, I might be out that pasture with you after your next book, John. Do we know that? What book are you working on now? The um, I'm starting on I'm I'm politically active as I mentioned, and I, I've I've wanted to do a political book. As a matter of fact, I I tried to do one be, instead of the uh, the Ernest Lehman book. I um, I was going to do a, a series of biographical profiles of uh, dissidents and whistleblowers during the Bush Cheney misrule. But and I worked on the proposal for a year, and not even the lefty publishers were interested in it, which was so I can't even go on a rant about capitalism or anything. But uh, the one I'm doing now is um, it is, uh, I don't know if you would remember uh, liberal Arizona Congressman uh, Morris Udall. But he ran for the Democratic presidential nomination in uh, 1976. He lost to Jimmy Carter. He always was coming in second. And to me, that's kind of a uh, fork in the road for the Democratic Party as to where it 
kind of uh, shifted away from FDR-style liberalism to the kind of centrist, corporatist, neoliberal swill that the Democrats have degenerated into. So um, I was a um, supporter of Udo. I I was a journalism grad student at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, I saw him uh, speak on campus at the Stock Pavilion. I was just back there doing research. So of course I went to the Stock Pavilion. And the night of the primary, it was um, two of the networks called it for Udo. It was, it was going to be his first win. And then late at night, the North County farm vote came in and God damn it, Carter won again. So uh, the book is going to be called Second Place Mo, which was what he called himself. And it's it's going to be my political book. Fascinating. So this is um, this is a uh, what do you call it? It, it at the time because mm-hmm. I because I I think I was in grade school at that time. Yeah, right. I mean I was I was like starting like first grade I think. Right. But at the time, um, the uh, what was was it like? Was it kind of a universal um, sadness that Carter was elected, or what was was he more more popular at the time? Well, he um, basically he um, was uh, well. He had this sort of um, kind of megawatt smile that really charmed people, um, and he was extremely ambitious. Whereas you know, Udo was sort of like he almost had to be talked into running. And so um, the, um, you know, Carter was, I mean, he was, you know, he he won the nomination. He just, he barely beat uh, Gerald Ford. He accomplished some good things. He, uh, uh, you know, the Camp David uh, peace accords between Israel and Egypt, uh, the uh, Panama Canal Treaty, which, you know, was a big fight. He did some good things, but again, his uh, lack of um, um, his kind of his lack of ideological grounding. He, I mean, you can have too much ideological grounding, and you know, then you're you're like a you know ideologically intoxicated. But the other extreme is kind of like Carter, which was that his ideology was himself, and when he got into trouble, there was really nobody there for him but himself. You know. Um, so that's why he was a one-term president and and lost to Reagan. So if if Mo would have won, we may have never had a Reagan. That is my feeling because Yudo yeah. um, was uh, unlike Carter, even though he had a broad uh, like a, an ear-to-ear grin. Yudo uh, was he was well he was much more popular with members of Congress. And so I think he would have been much more effective at, at getting things done. And even in 1980, with the threat in, of Reagan, a lot of Democratic liberals just couldn't bring themselves to vote uh, for Carter. So, yes, it is my contention that uh, Udo stood a better chance of defeating Reagan. Man, wait, and what? And it's just so strange the different place we would probably be today on so many levels. Well, absolutely. The uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Abigail Disney. She's a Disney heiress, 
But despite being a either a plutocrat or the scion of plutocrats, she's a kind of a liberal progressive kind of person. And she said, uh, when Reagan got in, that's really when the wheels started to come off the cart of this country. And, and I, I really agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I, I mean, I do too, but maybe because that's when I started to become, that's, that's when I, well, one, you know, that's when that's, I think there's a lot of punk rock and hardcore that came out of uh, the yes. Reagan era. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. you know, we had bands like Reagan youth and, um, and Reagan was the title in so many songs that, that was like hardcore and punk rock that I was like starting to get into. And even though he was even a caricature on the cover of a black flag record uh, on my war, that was one of, I mean, that was one of the defining moments of my life, listening to that record and going, wait, other, other people, my age can be angry too. Yeah. I've never heard this much anger and I didn't know they were, I had nothing. I knew they weren't talking about, I didn't know what politics was, but I knew anger and boy, I felt this on the inside. So these guys were angry too. So now they're my heroes. Well, and I, uh, I loathe and detest Reagan, but on the other hand, if he was responsible for missing persons, then I have to give him credit for that because they were a great band also. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And then, but, and then at the same time, are we giving these, are we giving these leaders way too much credit because these people would have done it anyway? It just would have been. A, yeah. Possible. Yes. <clears throat> I was talking to my therapist and I was telling her that, uh, I was like, you know, maybe I needed a, you know, was we were talking about situations in my life. And I was like, maybe I needed those things to happen to be where I am now. Mm-hmm. And, and right when I, right when it came out of my mouth, I felt like it was a falsehood. And she's like, act. And I was like, no, wait a second. Um, maybe, maybe everything that's happened to me, I'm making useful now. And she said, yeah, that's a better way to put it. You didn't need it. You didn't need these things to hit you, but they hit you. So you're making use of it. And I went, yes, that kind of, that feels there's more truth to it. This, this may or may not be a digression, but I've always had better luck with women therapists also. Yeah. I mean, not sexually, but in therapy. No, 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 no. <laughs> the, uh, but, and, and, and I've kind of tried to figure out why. And of course, one is that, uh, you know, one, I was closer to my mother than, than my father, but I think also, with a woman, it's like when you get two men together, there's always a certain amount of status jousting, I think. And, and with a woman, you, you, you just don't have that as much. Yeah. Yes. Even even doing interviews like this, um, when I'm in, in, in some, someone like some years ago said one of the most inane things she said well i you know i just want to make sure that we uh, she wanted the questions ahead of time i'm like i don't even know what i'm going to ask you i didn't even have her on the show because anyone asks for you know questions ahead of time i'm like the only question i have is how are you Mm -hmm. and then the reply was well a lot of women are treated differently than men on podcast (laughs) and 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 she went in this like feminist tirade and i'm like uh yeah because we talk to each other differently that's (laughs) that's like um, you know, not like I'm sitting here trying to joust with you, but right. there's 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 a there is a um, mm-hmm. there's there's different respect elements to talking mm-hmm. to a man versus talking to a woman. I think I'd mm-hmm. I would I probably saying things where I would um, 
I would be digging more into uh, maybe emotionals or feeling things. But but I think both of us, and this is me generalizing, and you could tell me I'm completely wrong, but mm-hmm. I feel like both of us are very in touch with our feminine sides. Like, yes, yes. And probably that's being creative and writing and stuff. Mm-hmm. So being that in touch probably helps us relate to a female um, therapist more mm-hmm. than a male therapist who might be like, just get out there and beat some people up. And <laughs> do it. Now, I um, I was talking to a uh, seminar for for the Lehman book uh, a couple of months ago, and and one point I, I made to them is that it seems to me that you know the best writers can both um, you know channel both you know the male voice and the female voice. Yeah. Yeah, and also the different versions of how it um, manifests in, in in all of us. It's uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's it's all quite interesting, and I guess a lot of that is how are we dealing with conflict in the end? Because conflict mm-hmm. is in everyday life, and then we're working on stories. It's like how like when you're working on nonfiction, you're working on how these real people dealt with the big conflicts of their life. You know. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. No. Well, I, what I was going to say is interesting is because I found working on my first biography, and I found it ever since, is that you accumulate so much information that you, you know, you have to make decisions: which facts will I include, which will I would throw out, which will I stress, which will I play down, and it's not on the same high order of art as fiction where you have to make things up and pull things out of yourself, but there's still an element of similarity in that you have to build the character. The character existed, of course, but you still, in your work, you have to build and design the character to make it reflect as best you can the character as he or she lived his or her life. And when you're, and when you're making choices, do you have to, it um, is, is there a lot of times where something is, something is factual, but it makes more sense to use a different scenario because you're trying to get the emotional essence of a person. The um, basically uh just the way I see it is sort of, uh, I kind of go a little according to the Zagat Guide principle, which is that if a lot of people talk about a certain aspect of, of a character, then that's important and I need to pursue it. If they don't talk about it as much, that doesn't mean I won't talk about it because maybe it's something that's important and most people weren't aware of. But there is an extent to which, like I said, I, I use the Zagat principle. If they talk about it a lot, I pursue it. If they don't talk about it a lot, I probably won't pursue it as much. And it's and it, and when you're working on a, do you, so you work on the proposal. Do you do? Did you say it takes mm-hmm. about a year to work on the proposal? Yeah, as a rule, yes. And and then and then on the proposal is when you sell the book, right? Well, basically. With nonfiction, it's two things. One is the proposal, and the other is a sample chapter. And I, my understanding is sometimes publishers now are like, we want multiple so sample chapters. 
But I say to hell with that. You know, here, here's the proposal, which is longitudinal. Here's the sample chapter, which is latitudinal. Or maybe it's the, the other way around. I can't remember which is latitude, which is longitude. But uh, in any event, if you can't tell from those two things, then I'm taking my wares down the street, you know. But, um, and actually, and one other thing I guess I'll mention is, as a freelance writer, I always learned, don't do a lot of work on, on the project before you sell it. That's, that's, that's foolish. It's not a good idea. You might be wasting your time. And that's logical, but I don't do that, you know, because on on my first book, I just had a root of an editor, just a miserable excuse for a human being. And my agent was pretty useless. That was the last agent I've ever had. And so because I had so much trouble with the machinery of the publishing industry, what I do now is I work on these things for several years, about two, three years. Then I do the proposal in the sample chapter and start selling it because my feeling is I want to have thing I want to be so solidly grounded in the project that by the time I start pitching it, that if someone says, no, you, you should change the character and, and make her a man, even though you even though she was a woman in real life or something like that, I will be so grounded in my project. I will say, no, I'm doing it the way I want. And to heck with you if you don't like it. That's ballsy. Well, it's I'm fortunate that I taught English as a second language in the adult division of the Los Angeles Unified School District for 27 years. So I have a pension and I can afford to do that. And oh, that's yeah, that's good. See, so yeah, then here's the here's the monument because I you know I told you I finished the novel that I've been working on for uh, over two years. But I right. but about two years ago is when I said, "All right, it's four hours a day. Let's go." And mm -hmm. um, and there's no hope. Of, I mean, I don't. I yeah, I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty confident with it, and I know that it'll be published somehow. Mm -hmm. But I don't know mm -hmm. what the outcome is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and at the same time there's no guarantee of anything and it's 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 but at the same but at the same time if i wasn't writing it i wouldn't feel whole right right well th the way i look at it is you're a not just a published author but a well reviewed one you are not just a screenwriter but your screenplay exists as an actual movie and again someone Someone will take you on. Ideally, it will be who you want. You know, it will be with the appropriate amount of prestige and money. But I fearlessly predict that someone will take this on. And it's even if you're not thrilled, you will be satisfied. I'm going to I, that's going to be my new ringtone. What you just said. <laughs> 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 and I'll be like, and they'll be like, aren't you going to answer that? And I'm like, no, I got to hear this to the end. <laughs> I'll never answer any of my calls. I'll just be like, no, 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 hold on. <laughs> right, 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 I'll be right, right back. Just, just listen to this and leave the message, okay? Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. I like that. You, 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 you're easing my mind a little bit because, like, last night is when I just like. Last night at around eight o'clock, I put the, you know, 
Am I the first person you've told? Am I the first person you've told? No, no, I I called a friend of mine and told her and uh well still, but to be to be that close to the top of the batting order is an honor. So thank you. Yeah, a lot of my friends I haven't told I finished yet. So you know, because like when you get like when you get to the point of finishing, which I think I think I've learned after you got one book in the can or you got one thing in the can. You get to the point of finishing. It's not something you brought. It's not something to throw out to the world. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, we got to here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, who will care? Maybe if maybe, you know, well, everyone cares. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of the questions are like, especially from non-writers. Well, when is it going to come out? And I'm like, oh, best case scenario, 2025. And they're like, oh my God, what? And I'm like, yeah, this doesn't just come out like tomorrow. No. <laughs> I, my right. agent hasn't even looked at it yet and told me that I'm crazy and to stop writing. You know, it's just. <laughs> but the fact is, this is a milestone in your life, and you can now divide your life into before this moment and after this moment. So much truth to that. Yes. It would, and it's, uh, and I took, I even took like photos myself. I was taking photos of documenting the moment and documenting mm-hmm. you know the the binder which oh yeah i have the binder right here this is the binder of the last printed out draft that and hopefully right. the last draft i have to print out um right. but because the, the changes are minimal i was i went through this last draft and i'm like oh my god i think this is it and well the thing that's so good is when the changes are minimal like that that's when you know you have actually finished the damn thing. Yeah. You know what was weird about this one too, which I didn't, which I kind of realized this week. I never outlined like zero. Like usually I'll outline when I have, when I'm like, oh wait, I have these scenes. Right. I need, I need to write these scenes down. And I wrote some scenes down. And like when I would do rewrites, I was like, oh, insert scene here, insert scene here. But, but I never really sat down and put a full outline together. And I realized I needed every time I started the rewrite, I needed to read the whole book within two days and only, and only that was my only outline. And that was my, and it's just like, does that feel right? And then it's just like, Oh, it doesn't feel right. And there would be like insert here. And, you know, I had all the little insert notes, but then like the last two or three rewrites, Mm -hmm. it was like the scenes were locked and I'm like, do these still make sense? Is everything still, you know, I, but you know, like before in projects that never got made or never got published, I would always have all oh, these three characters and they're in this scene and here's the next jump. And they, they end up on, they're on page 62 and one character ends up again on page eight. Like I'm usually di- diagramming it. Like I'm a forensic scientist. And on this one, I was just like, it was just this weird thing of, I had to keep it on intuition. I had to like, just keep it away. And I don't know why. Well, it, it sounds like, uh, like on this one, you, you kind of, uh, you felt comfortable, uh, you know, riding the bicycle without having trainer wheels. I don't know if I felt comfortable. It's <laughs> a long way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, but who's supposed to feel comfortable in these situations? You know, it's if yeah. if it was comfortable, everyone would do it. Well, I, I must tell you though that, you know, as a nonfiction book author um when i put together i mean i don't just outline the book i outline the chapters and the outlines are always longer than the chapters because you know you wind up throwing a lot of stuff out but the idea of trying 
to write a non-fiction book chapter without an outline absolutely terrifies me. You know, it's I, and then you come from a journalism background, and I, I kind of fumbled my way into journalism, and I, I not journalism on like the high end, like things mean a lot. I'm talking about doing author profiles and <laughs> interviewing bands for the San Those Francisco are worthwhile projects. Yeah, but but at the <clears throat> so when I was writing for the San Francisco Chronicle for years, and even had like a music column with them for a while, but I think I always did it wrong because I never I would like write it like it was fiction first. So I'd get I'd get the whole. I it's like I didn't realize journalists had like questions planned ahead of time, and all, it almost like beats. I would just sit there and talk to people for like forty five minutes for like a five hundred word. Uh, article mm -hmm. i would transcribe the whole thing i would right. go th I, it's i did it so wrong and wasted so much time i find it hilarious looking back on my old earnest self you know but but at the same time but how did the, how did the editors and readers respond uh well they responded by not firing me and still paying me so i think that's a go <laughs> I, I i agree with you completely yeah that's the only way you know you're doing it right is it's I, I even on like my 400th article I turned in I just I was just like I knew I was like my editor is going to finally realize this is this is this person does not belong here and we need to get a different writer here immediately and I would turn it in and then uh, I wouldn't hear from her and mm -hmm. that's when I knew well everything's fine and then it would come out in next week's newspaper. <laughs> There, there you go. Silence is golden. <laughs> and then I learned not, to, you know, and then the impulse in me is like, did you like it? Is it okay? Can I, and, you know, they're like, these people are working hard. They got, they got a whole newspaper to put together. They're, they are actually, they're dealing with their managing editors who are like, wait, how much, wait, we're going to do Duchesne on like a half page with, okay. But you know, they're like, they're in meetings constantly. So as long as I'm not screwing up their flow, I'm doing the job right. Exactly. <laughs> I think it, it would that that's like a journalism school. Uh, that might be a journalism school class. Don't don't disrupt the flow, and you'll be okay. Oh, actually, I was going to mention when I talked about all the uh, you know the research you know that I you know I do on on my books that uh, interesting is that yeah you know, Ernest Lehman uh, as a screenwriter. Uh, he was also known known for doing a lot of research, and uh, the you know his his most famous films, of course, are like uh, you know West Side Story, North by Northwest, Sound of Music, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, Sabrina. But he also he did um, he wrote the screenplay for um, Somebody Up There Likes Me. It was the uh, biographical film of Rocky Graziano, which made uh, Paul Newman a star. And um, while he was working on that film, you know, he said to, it was MGM, he said, I need to go back East and do research on, you know, you know, the, the slums where Rocky Grazio, Graziano grew up. And they were like, no, no, that's too much money. But he insisted and he went and he wound up getting all these details that just made it just one of the best biographical films ever. So uh, to us, and actually that was, yeah, well, it was a non, I was going to say it was a nonfiction film. It was largely a nonfiction film. There were, there was some fiction in it. It was kind of a, it was a hybrid of the two, I guess. And that, that makes so much sense. 
was like, like I've had people take my writing courses on uh, whether it's screenwriting or novel writing and they're writing about a point. They're like, they set it in the city and I'm like, have you ever been there? And they're like, no. And I'm like, then don't write. You, you have to be, you need to know what it smells like. You need, you need to know the energy of a city before you write a city in. And so it makes so much sense that he would go, he would ask for that money. And I would, you know, I mean, even if I, I doubt they would give the, they used to ha have more freedom with money. I think in those days, now they would just be like, no, we're not doing it. You'd have to kind of go there on your own, you know? The, uh, well, again, you know, you, you, you do what you have to, uh, to cope with these situations. Yeah. 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 So, um, but anyway, um, I, I guess now I have interrupted the flow for which I apologize. That's all right. Yeah, um, we could do awkward science uh, silence and look at each other too. That plays very well on podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, it. Um, well, basically, actually, well, uh, you know that that being the case, the um, actually what what I thought I would mention is sort of how I came to write the book, which is yeah. That, Oh, for God's sake! Um, is that an answering machine? It is. You use you, you have a landline. I do. Do you know? I this was like ten years ago. I, hey, I unplugged the phone, but but I said, "Go on." No, ten years ago, I was dating someone that 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 uh, it, that could have worked out, but certain things came up. But um, early in our dating, when we were having sex, I. Yeah. Um, I was I was really good too. I mean, just let me just you know I, we were having sex. And I looked down, I looked down and there was a phone on uh, near near her bed. Yeah. And I and as we were having sex, I pick I was like, is that a landline? She goes, Yeah. And I picked it up to hear dial tone. And I had to stop the sex because I hadn't heard dial tone in so right. long. And and she, you know, it's we we had a good report. It's not like I sat there and went, we need to stop. We were we're just fooling around. We'll get back into it. But I'm like, right. you have dial tone and a landline. Why aren't we married? Why aren't we married already? <laughs> this is amazing. So, well, it um yeah, I I still have a landline with a with a dial tone. As a matter of fact, uh, a few weeks ago the uh the dial tone went out and it took a lot of screaming at ATT to 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 get it back. But Anyway, uh, no, I, I apologize for that interruption because I, I unplugged my phone, but I forgot to unplug the uh, the answering machine. The um, In any case, I was going to tell you how I came to write this for Schlegener book, yeah. uh, which is that um, when the uh, political um, book uh, fell through, the, uh, you know, the profiles of the Bush-Cheney dissidents and whistleblowers, said, all right, I'm going to do another entertainment biography. I, I've done two already. And um, so I thought living one zip code away from Hollywood, I'll do a biography of a screenwriter because I've always wanted to do literary biography. So I was going to do this guy, Jules Firthman, who uh, wrote several Bogart films. Um, and uh, so I went to the, uh, the library of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, and I requested his biography file and they brought it and I thought well this looks very small and it feels very light and I opened it and two one inch obituaries from the trades fell out of it and that was it and at this point everyone who knew him was dead 
And I said, this won't work. So I'd ordered, while well, I was looking into Firthman, I ordered a book, which is a capsule biographies of American screenwriters. It fell open to Ernest Lehman. I said, hey, I know that guy. Because what had happened was about, uh, oh, about 10 years earlier, uh, while he was still alive, um, one, the New York Times Arts and Leisure section did a long uh, feature article on the artistry of the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which did not mention the screenwriter, which is a kind of typical Hollywood thing. Right. And so I wrote a crabby letter to the editor saying, how dare you? They published it. And a week or two later, I get a letter from Ernest Lehman saying, thank you. I've been fighting this fight all my life. And at that point, when I got the letter, I got up and uh, walked into the hallway of my small and poorly insulated Los Feliz apartment and looked at my poster for the 1966 re-release of North by Northwest. I said, yeah, that's the same guy. So I walked back to my desk. I looked at his letter again. For whatever reason, he put his phone number on it. So I called him up. I said, oh, Mr. Lehman, thank you so much for your letter. And by the way, would you autograph my poster? He said, sure. So I drove out to Brentwood. Uh, we talked a little. He autographed my poster. I used the bathroom and I left, you know. Um, and so when this years later, when I'm trying to come up with a book subject and this uh, collection of biographies of uh, screenwriters falls open to Lehman, I said, I know this guy. He did all these important movies. Okay, I'm in. That is so, so cool. Do you do you feel like do you almost feel like I have a responsibility to these um, these people that you you're, you dive into for like three years? Did like the responsibility is that way heavy on you? It is, and I don't dive into them for three years. I dive into them for five to six years. Oh wow. The, um, and yes, I do, because um, I'm not the kind of person who's going to do the 104th biography of Frank Sinatra. I tend to write about people who only get one biography. And so there is a lot of responsibility on me to get it right. So, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And what was what was the first biography that you wrote? What like what, did you just go like what was the decision to, to be like? <laughs> wait a second, I I'm, I'm into this. I'm gonna, mm -hmm. I'm diving full steam ahead into right. this. And did you think that you would continue to write biographies after that? Uh, that's a few different questions, but the... way too many. If you forget them, that's fine. <laughs> the um. The first one I got into, I was about to turn 40, and I wanted to be an author. And to be an author, you have to write books. And um, I, when I was writing for newspapers, the kind of articles I most liked writing were personal profiles. So I said, okay, the book length equivalent of a personal profile is a biography, so I must be a biographer. So um, I was just looking around for a subject. As a matter of fact, I was going to do uh, Patty Chayefsky, 
but it turned out someone had beat me to the punch on that. And while I was looking into Patty Chayefsky, his, uh, you know, who did Marty and all these great live TV dramas of the 1950s, and while I was looking into him, everyone kept mentioning his producer, Fred Coe, what a genius he was, what a patron saint of writers he was, what a character he was. He was he was born in Alligator, Mississippi, you know. The um, And so when the uh, Patty Chavsky project fell through, I went to Delbert Mann, who was the... Uh, who won the Oscar as best director uh, of the film version of Marty in 1956. And I said, well, the, the Patty Chayefsky project fell through, but I said, would a, would a biography of Fred Coe also double as a good history of the rise and fall of 1950s live TV drama? And he said, I couldn't think of a better subject. And there went the next five or six years of my life. So did so what uh when when you got that validation, mm-hmm. you still had to put the proposal together to get yep. everything together before yep. you got any advance, right? Or is that how it worked? The, actually, well, that was the one book where I I did from the get-go, I did the book proposal, I did the sample chapter, I got the publisher, and then wrote the book. And my uh editor, who I still fondly think of as the human buzzsaw, uh, just uh, disabused me of uh, of doing that again. Well, um, the human buzzsaw in a good way or in a bad way? Oh, in a very bad way. Oh, um, okay, okay. She, um, <clears throat> basically, I was, um, what I did, because it was my first book, and I you know, wanted to make sure I was doing everything right, so I'd write a chapter and send it off to her. And she'd say, yeah, yeah, looks good, looks good. And I did that all the way to the end. And I said, okay, now I'm ready to send you the whole book. And it's yay long. She goes, oh, my God, that's much too long. We're going to have to throw out like about, uh, it was somewhere between a third and a half of it. And when I complained about that, she laughed at me. And that's the... Uh, that's this. This is like the worst publishing story I've ever heard in my life, and it yeah. happened to me. Yeah. My God, and it's, and she's already approving like uh, the chapters when she's reading yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. And I said, how, um, how could you approve all the chapters? And now at the end, say it's too, uh, uh, it's too long. She goes, well, I'm really, I, I, I'm a, I'm a very busy person. And if I were a little quicker on the draw or more courageous or both, I would have said, well, you should never be too busy to be competent. Yeah. Isn't it, it like we always have we always have the reply so long after the good, the good the, reply. The, the, the French call that the wit of the staircase, because what happens is you're leaving the party, you're going downstairs and you think of the exact thing you should have said to that jerk in the salon. <laughs> the wit on the staircase is such a great metaphor. It's, it's it's so good for that. The um, 
I feel like I have that all the time. I feel like I had and part of the part of the you know part of the greatness of doing a podcast is I feel mm-hmm. like oh wait, yeah at the at the end of every podcast I'm I always have the oh I should have asked that and you just get to the point where it's just like give up because you're never gonna ask that great question because you'll know it five minutes after you're done taping and you and there's no going back. <laughs> but the thing is that even if that question had occurred to you in time, after the fact, you would have thought of another great question. It's a never ending circle. That makes sense. Huh? Blowing my mind, man. How long, how, <laughs> did, you, did you teach in Los Angeles? The uh, Yes, I, I was a, uh, it was the adult division of the Los Angeles Unified School District. And it was a, even though I was, I've always been afraid of getting up in front of audiences and never wanted to be a teacher. It wound up being a wonderful experience. Do you have a fear of being in uh, public speaking? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. Huh? Yeah, um, I just, um, and for the first few years that I taught, I would constantly catch myself gravitating to the front corner of the classroom. And then I would have to tell myself, get back in the middle. You're the teacher. So uh, <laughs> you're trying to hide as you're teaching. I love that so much. It's it's like blocking. It's like blocking for teachers. You know, it's just you, you get there in the middle and you own it. Even <laughs> and, and I've learned that too. It's like even, um, oh my God, when I started teaching at UCLA Extension, which is going to be mm-hmm. like nine years ago, very in like two months, my mm-hmm. first class, I was so overprepared for. I had like 15 hours of material for the three hours. And I was scared to death that they were going to realize that I'm the wrong person to be here. Right. It's just all those things. It's just like, if this is the only quarter. If this is the only quarter they're ever going to let me teach, I'm just going to do the best I can, and then they can fire me after this. And no. um, and it's and it and part of me was just like stay in the middle of that room. I I, mm-hmm. I did, but it was just like I didn't say stay in the middle of the room, but I I I kind of had a little like just like stay present and mm-hmm. don't don't come back, like stay mm-hmm. forward, that kind of thing, and then um. Now I don't even think about it, but at the time I was like, you know, torn apart and just going, um, <laughs> I was also reacting to my students too. Cause I would react. There was like, if, if someone looked like that, they had a, they had a question. I was, I'd be like, <laughs> did I say something wrong? <laughs> Look at me like, no, come on. Oh, okay. I was no, so I'm... like intimidated. <laughs> Well, I I remember in the first class that I taught, and I think, although I thought I was overprepared, it turned out I was underprepared because I I didn't realize the way the material would would fill the time or not. But I still remember in my first class or my first quarter semester, whatever it was, that, you know, I had to take off one day to go do some of my own stuff. And, you know, I came back and I asked students, how did it go? And the student was saying, oh, it was really great. The teacher did this, and we put a menu on the board, and we ordered off it. And and I, I must have looked kind of, like, dejected, like, and, and he said, oh, but you're good, too, teacher. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, but the, oh, but the, oh, but you're good, too, just doesn't cut it after that. 
But, but, I, but I still appreciate it. By the way, in, in the spirit of buttering up the podcast, I must tell you, as, as someone who, who, who takes your uh, creative writing class that at uh, the COS branch of the, of the uh, LA Public Library, that you, you, you have what I consider the, the best characteristic of uh, creative writing workshop teachers, which is that you create this atmosphere where people just feel comfortable sort of letting it all hang out and take a risk and possibly even making a fool of yourself. But that, that, that's the best way to, to run these classes. So, so thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I like that. I kind of like, I try to feel like I try to make it like I'm the fool. So let's all be fools. I always, you know, or, or, I, or I, as I say in my head, we're all equal scumbags. Like I don't, you know, it's, let's just be mm -hmm. equal scumbags and let's, let's mm -hmm. do this. Equal scumbags is the word that I use more in my head than that. Uh, no, but yeah. it's uh, it, it it really is, is is a fun workshop. Thank you. I have a blast doing it. I pitched it like what did I pitch it over five years ago. I you know I lost this all happened because I lost a book and then I found the book and mm -hmm. then I went to the library to see if I can get a refund and I didn't mind if I didn't get a refund because I I'd rather have a fine with the library than have to pay for parking tickets. Mm -hmm. It's just like this is this is uh, you know. I, and I really couldn't afford it at the time. I was at a I was at a space where I was just like I needed that forty five dollars back. <laughs> so it's just like I really had to go in and do this. But at the same time, if I have to eat it, I am. I, and I even kept telling Matthew I didn't met him yet, but we were like I was just like, look, you know, if this doesn't work, it's fine. I'm happy that you guys get it more. That you know this this could have been a parking ticket. It's libraries mean everything to me. And as we were talking, I was like, by the way. Do you, you know, do you have people teach classes here? And I just, I pitched him right there. Interesting. And, then, and then it was just, and like two months later, I did the first workshop and um, it just kind of, they were, you know, it was, it, it was just, it was so interesting. And then he's like, do you want to do it again? And I'm like, yeah. And then, and now it's set in well, stone. <laughs> well, I, but but I, I think it's so noble of you because I, I, I I I can't imagine there's much, if any, money in it. And it's so all it's all volunteer, yeah. And so I I, I regard this as like the uh, this is like the literary equivalent of social work. I think. I, I I don't even think it's that noble because I think it's it's almost like I get to be around a I'm a weirdo and I get to be around a bunch of weirdos who also want to do this thing. So it it doesn't feel like I'm actually going out and like serving food to underprivileged right. people or anything like that. I just feel like I want to be around a bunch of people who are weird like me and mm -hmm. dig talking about storytelling and also want to sit there and do a writing exercise. And it's and it's so it's so lovely. I don't know if you were you there a couple times ago, but I really love it when people come in and it's their first time and it's the first time they've ever read any of their work to a class. And it was work that they wrote right there. Mm -hmm. And it's just, and it's so brave of them to do. And it like, it warms my heart when people are like, you know, even when they're like in their fifties and sixties, I'm like, is this the first time you've read in front of every, your work in front of anybody? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, wow. Like that, that tickles me to no end that, that like makes me feel alive. You know, and what what's what's really exciting is when someone you know just kind of walks in off the street and they just read something, and you think you're good. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun. Absolutely. And I and I'm always happy when you show up. I love I love seeing like regulars. It's you know, and we and we got great regulars. Like there's there there's nobody that I wouldn't um mm-hmm. uh not want to keep coming back i get such a kick out of it um you know i i try not to talk too much because i i'm kind of a ringer you know (laughs) (laughs) oh no it's you do whatever you want man it's uh i think we've had very interesting people come in even like people who've Mm -hmm. written screen written screenplays there's Mm -hmm. there's such a mix people come in they've done stand-up comedy for 10 years they're trying to do and it's just like and there's people who are like i'm you know i am an accountant i've never put a word on a page in my life and i love having all those people in the same room when else Mm -hmm. can we have all those people in the same room and then just talk about writing because writing is for everyone Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree with you completely. You know, agreeing with me completely is a great way to end this interview. John, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Tony. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCR LP, Santa Cruz. I'm Sean Yeah!